Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City, a journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's a great pleasure that for the second episode dedicated to uh, Jerusalem and outside Jerusalem, uh, so after a trip to Gaza, today we're going to visit Nazareth, and we're going to do it with uh, Professor Lina Delashe. Lina is an associate professor at Humboldt State University, and she published a good number of works on the social political history of Nazareth, particularly uh, in the period between 1940s to 1966, and then also later mm. on. First of all, Lina, welcome. Thank you so much, Roberto, for having me. Lina, since I cannot ask uh, what is your Jerusalem, because we're going to talk <laughs> about Nazareth, but let me ask uh, what is your connection with the city of Nazareth and how you start working on the city of Nazareth? Uh, so I grew up in the Nazareth area in a small village near Nazareth, but uh, Nazareth has always been the kind of urban center for, for us growing up, for, for me, for my family. This is where my aunt went to, the, to high school. This is one of the first high schools in the area. So it's always had this central place and, of course, as the nationalist center and for the Palestinians who are in Israel, the political center. Um, so in, in, in that sense, I grew up with Nazareth as a part of my culture. Um, and then uh, when I went to grad school, I decided to um, try to understand more of the history of the Palestinian citizens of Israel or become citizens of Israel in 48, who seemed to disappear from both Israeli and Palestinian histories. Um, so I wanted to try to understand this history and I realized that the only way to overcome the um, exclusion, the structural exclusion of Palestinians is to study this history across the 1948 divide. Um, and in order to study this history, you had to find, I had to find a place that actually had records 
that were usable for both periods and um, that actually survived the Nakba and um, that eventually brought me to Nazareth, which um, in 1948, unlike the other Palestinian cities is actually not depopulated, but in fact increases in population as about 30% of its residents are now refugees from the nearby villages and from the Palestinian cities, uh, Haifa, Tiberias and Bissan, and um, the city also becomes uh, what I'm now kind of theorizing as the reluctant city. It's a it's it's a town earlier, right? It's it's a, it's an administrative center. It's an important Christian place, uh, but eventually it was a fifteen thousand person um, town. It was a center a, a center for its hinterland, a market town, but it wasn't um, it wasn't anywhere near what Haifa and Yaffa and Aled and Ramli were um, in Palestinian imaginary and definitely not in, uh, in the same category as Jerusalem, although it shared the holy city aspect with it. Um, but in post-1948, it ends up being the only urban center for the Palestinians who become citizens of Israel. It's the only place that they can look to uh, for um, what they looked to Haifa and, and, and Yaffa and the other cities before. Um, and, and, and it turns into the social, political, and economic center for the Palestinian citizens of Israel. So for my inquiry, for my interest uh, in trying to understand the history of those who become Palestinian uh, citizens of Israel in 1948, it was the perfect location to explore um, these questions. You have anticipated a lot of... Uh... Uh, questions that I want to ask, uh, but uh, let me start with this. So Nazareth is today known as some sort of the uh, Arab capital of Israel. Um, roughly speaking, 80,000 uh, um, mm -hmm. Arabs, Palestinians, uh, citizens of Israel living there. But there's also a nearby town um, of Galil, uh, which is, I would say, roughly speaking, 40,000 people. And this is mostly uh, Israeli Jewish inhabitants. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. before getting there, obviously Nazareth has a long history, uh, not mm -hmm. to mention the fact that Nazareth, as you already said, is a holy city. Um, mm -hmm. Christians tend to downplay somehow Nazareth in favor of Jerusalem and Bethlehem, but uh, the reality is that for Christians, Nazareth is the place where Jesus lived most of his life, and I'm going to say something here very controversial, but probably he was even born in Nazareth. Um, uh, I, I mean, the very fact that in both Arabic and uh, uh, Hebrew and Aramaic, which was the language spoken back in, in the day. I mean, Jesus was known as the Nazarene, Nostri, Nostri. Uh, I think Nostri, that speaks volume. Yeah. But obviously, we're not going to get into the question, was it Bethlehem <laughs> or was Nazareth? That we leave it with uh, uh, biblical uh, Bible scholars or archaeologists. But I was wondering if you can trace, us, uh, trace for us a little bit of a, a recent history of uh, Nazareth. You know, you already mentioned that it was a smaller town, but I was wondering, mm -hmm. you know, where is Nazareth from, essentially? I mean, we know that it has a long history. And so mm -hmm. what was uh, Nazareth before, let's say, the Mandate era, before becoming this yeah. uh, Arab capital of Israel? So records show that there was some presence, because of this connection to the Christian history, that there was some presence uh, over the uh, centuries that changed. It ebbed and flowed, but there was some presence in Nazareth, uh, but it was mostly a marginal village um, and in fact in some periods was even a Muslim 
village um, in many ways. Um, the turning point for Nazareth is uh, Dahar al-Umar's uh, rule in northern Palestine in the late, uh, in the Ottoman period, in the late 19th, uh, sorry, 18th century. Uh, where he turned Nazareth into one, to, one of his centers. And he, um, the new regime in the Galilee that provided um, increased security allowed for Nazareth to actually gain prominence and prosper. And prosper uh, because now the, this you know, hinterland um, hill, hillside town is actually protected from raids and the people coming to it, trade coming to it, is able to go through. Uh, but then also Dahar um, al-Umar allows uh, protection and safety for Christian institutions that now come and start building um, more and more Christian institutions. So this, the, the, the town really takes a big turn into the, the development of what it comes to be by the late 19th century, beginning with Ahar al-Umar, uh, because again, this centrality in Christian imaginary and in Christian theological um, uh, discourse, um, more and more religious organizations um, start centering in it. And of course, um, in, in a dynamic that is probably not very different from the dynamic in, in Lebanon that Osama Maklisi talks about, there's also an inner conflict between the different Christian sects. So they all build their own institutions um, in the city, which is of course a part of, of the growth of the city. So if, if you look at the geography of the city and where are these religious institutions, you'll see that they're a part of the expansion, the geographical expansion of the city. Um, as um, Schultz and others have shown, Palestine grows um, significantly financially and, and population-wise in the 19th century, and second half particularly the 19th century. And this development continues in, in Nazareth. Um, it's still not a huge town. Um, it is uh, mostly Christian by the beginning of the, uh, the mandate, but it still has a, a significant uh, Muslim population, um, both in the old city um, in, uh, and in what was developing into the new uh, neighborhood that is called the Hara Sharqiyi, which is um, a Muslim neighborhood. Uh, so with the, um, the introduction of the British mandate, um, they make uh, sorry, they make Nazareth into their um, northern region center, administrative center. And that, of course, increases its attention, but it also kind of um, fits, uh, increases its or sharpens its its affiliation with this Christian city. The, Br the British are very invested in this idea of, of Nazareth as a holy city. Um, so there is definitely that development, but at the same time, it's kind of going through parallel processes, um, not in the same scale as Haifa and Yafa, but it is um, a growing city, um, and it is uh, embedded in many ways in the in the developments of political and social developments in in Palestine. Um, it continues to be a market city uh, throughout the mandate period, um, and as I said, uh, administrative uh, center for the British. Uh, but not much industry develops, and most of the uh, workers actually travel to Haifa to work in the refineries and in um, the train installations. Um, that also meant that the city was very connected to Haifa in, um, in that sense. Um, and and uh, by the end of the mandate period, there's 15,000 people in, um, in Nazareth uh, itself. Uh, the city has little 
industry, some workshops, um, and um, you know, as as mentioned before, it changes radically uh, during the Nakba, the Palestinian catastrophe. I was just wondering about um, the question of religious presence, because uh, obviously, for visitors today, uh, the very center of uh, Nazareth is basically. Uh, you know, marked by the presence of various churches, the, the Catholic, the Franciscan one actually is probably the biggest one indeed yes, yeah. in the city center. So I, I was wondering to what extent um, religious uh, Christian presence and European presence mark the development of the city. Um, that's a really good, interesting question. So um, one of my chapters, um, in the forthcoming book, it traces the, 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 the contest over the water uh, management in the city. And the way I stumbled into this topic was by finding a telegram from the chief secretary to the, um, the British government saying, you know, we're about to leave, this is early 48, we're about to leave and we're leaving this holy city after 20 years of controlling it without proper water. So there is this, I think that telegram really encompasses the ways in which the British um, and European basically viewed themselves. So on the one hand, there's a very strong discourse, civilizing discourse, this, this um, mandate idea of, of kind of developing Palestine. And on the other hand, on the ground, the British did not want to invest any resources in Palestine, including in Nazareth. Um, so um, in that sense, the city actually does not develop in any significant extent during uh, the British mandate. Um, in fact, um, in almost ironic way, the schools and the hospitals were all missionary schools. So there was an investment, an outside investment, but it was missionary based. And um, the irony is that until today, the only hospitals in Nazareth are still those same um, missionary school uh, hospitals from um, that period. But in terms of the government um, efforts, um, then and now, um, they're still definitely uh, falling short of the development discourse that they seek to present. Given the fact that Nazareth was a mixed city in terms of uh, the religious makeup, uh, you know, large presence of Muslims and obviously very important presence of uh, Christians, I, I was wondering what was the role of Nazareth and its people uh, particularly for the, the British mandate in terms of the development of the nationalist movement and what kind of trajectories uh, they took mm -hmm. uh, around that period mm -hmm. of time. Um, thank you. So the, the, this question is, is interesting in, 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 in the ways that it actually complicates the, the, the narrative or the answer um, because uh, part of my argument is that the way that we think about sectarianism today doesn't necessarily reflect the ways in which people thought about themselves. Yes, religion played a role in people's lives, uh, but it played very different role. It wasn't central identity and it wasn't identity, an identity in the senses that we think about. Um, so for instance, in Nazareth, um, the political fault lines uh, were not even though the British, of course, advance this idea of sectarian division and they work very, very hard on creating, you know, and consolidating sectarianism as, as defining characters of communities uh, because it was a way of undermining any nationalist solidarities. Uh, but 
in the contest over the municipal council, for instance, the, which was the only elected body in the city and only twice in 1934 and 1946 were there elections there, um, the fault lines were not Christians and Muslims, as we kind of expect when we read sectarianism, um, according to our current understanding, but it was actually um, Western Christians, i.e. Um, what is called Latin, um, uh, Greek Orthodox and Roman Orthodox, uh, sorry, Greek Catholics and Roman Catholics, um, and Protestants, the very small Protestant community there, um, aligned together with the Muslims of the old city, which are the elite families, the Fahums, the Zorbis, et cetera, against the Greek Orthodox who were allying with the Muslims of the newer neighborhood, the Hara Sharqiyya, the Eastern neighborhood, uh, which were less affluent. So that the alliance, and, and this alliance repeats both in 34 and in 46 elections and in the periods in between and continues even after that. So the, the, the ways that sectarian configurations were being um, worked and, and imagined were very different than, than what we kind of think about when we think about sectarianism. Um, that being said, there was definitely an involvement of all these groups within the national movement in different levels. Um, Nazareth was uh, more affiliated with the um, opposition, with the Nashashidi uh, faction. The Fahums uh, particularly were um, a part of the Nashashidi faction. And um, in that sense, it kind of was marginalized to the mainstream in certain ways uh, uh, in the mainstream nationalist movement. But uh, on the at the same time, it still had a very active nationalist movement. It was a part of many of the central events um, in um, the Palestinian national history. Um, and uh, most interestingly, at least um, for me, is the um, very deep left engagement with the nationalist movement that um, develops in Nazareth uh, from the early 40s, initially uh, with a labor movement, which was um, the um, left-centered labor movement, initially as a part of the Palestine Arab Workers Society pause, which was centered in Haifa, but eventually the Nazareth uh, Union actually is one of the leading uh, unions in creating the new leftist union in 1945, the Arab Workers Congress. And the Arab Workers Congress combined an ideology of uh, workers' interest and class interest with an, a very clear nationalist agenda. Um, so for the AWC and, and for its Nazareth branch, the interest of the nation um, was in advancing uh, the working class and the interest of the working class was through protecting the nation. And uh, this movement is also intertwined with the National Liberation League, the communist, uh, this communist, communist leftist uh, uh, movement. There's an intellectual uh, uh, organization also affiliated with the communist, the Arab, um, what is it? The League of Arab Intellectuals. Um, so they're all kind of very central into the left nationalist mobilization. And it is this group that remains in the city um, that becomes central to the political mobilization um, in the transition after 48, um, particularly in the early years. This leads me to ask a question about the role of Nazareth in two major events uh, of the late British mandate, you know, the Arab revolt, 1936 mm -hmm. and 39, and then later on, 1948, Historical mm -hmm. records suggest that Nazareth was fairly quiet. I mean, it didn't uh, 
you know, records don't really show that Nazareth was at the very center of a revolt. And certainly in 48, we know that yeah. the city somehow surrendered. I don't know if it's the right word here, but certainly- Yeah, it surrendered. Did surrender rather quickly compared, for instance, to nearby villages that kept the resistance fighting, you know, stronger yeah. uh, against the, um, the, the emerging IDF Israeli uh, army. So I, I was wondering if this is a, like a question about, uh, you know, they make up all the people, the uh, spirituality of the city, the nature of, of the Nazareth as, as a holy city, or is a, was a political choice not to uh, uh, take the city at the forefront of the political battle? Um. I think it's a combination of several factors. Um, I mean, during the revolt, Andrews is actually assassinated in, um, in Nazareth, but that was the most extreme event that happens uh, in Nazareth. Uh, as I mentioned, um, the city's leadership, the, tr the city's traditional leadership, the elite families were affiliated more with the Neshashibis. Um, so it makes sense that they weren't as involved in the revolt, particularly in the second um, more um, violent armed conflict part of the revolt. Um, the city did have strikes um, during the early stages um, uh, um, and was uh, mobilizing um, in that sense, at least as far as the records can tell, because as you, you know, the Palestinian um, press was shut down very early on in this, um, in this process, at least some of it. Uh, but I've found records of, of the city being a part of the national mobilization. They had branches of the national committees. They had branches of the parties. Um, they weren't a major city in, in, in all in all, they weren't a major city in Palestine in, in, in the size and, and extent of the city. So I think a part of it was that. 48 is a different story or a different question, I think, because there's several layers to what happens in, 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 in Nazareth. So Nazareth actually surrendered without fighting at all. It's not even relative to other. It literally there wasn't a single shot shot in Nazareth. Uh, but this wasn't only due to Nazareth because Nazareth had a unit of the Arab uh, Liberation Army um, stationed in the city for months. And after the fall of Shafa Amr, the um, Arab Army actually withdrew from the city without fighting. So by the time the Israeli army was approaching from Shafa Amr to Nazareth, the city had, the army had already withdrawn from the city. Um, so the, the city's leadership um, was faced with a decision of either fighting with the limited forces that they had or surrendering and they chose to surrender, um, um, uh, hoping to, um, to survive. Now we have to remember this is happening in mid uh, July. This is very late in, in the Nakba. This is after the depopulation of most of the major Palestinian cities. It's the same. It, it, it uh, concurs with the, the depopulation of Lidda and Ramle. Um, but at this late phase, I think the, the, the considerations of whether to fight or not were very complex um, for, for any Palestinian city. Uh, but then again, there's also, I mean, Hassan Abbasi, uh, sorry, Mustafa Abbasi, uh, uh, Dr. Mustafa Abbasi argues that this, a part of it was the pragmatic leadership of Yusuf Fahoum, the recently appointed mayor of Nazareth at the time. Um, and, and Abbasi actually attributes this pragmatism 
to or attributes the city's survival, at least partially, to this pragmatism. Um, another part of the story is that Nazareth, according to some records, had 20,000 refugees in it at that point, by the point that the Israelis come to it. This is a city of 15,000 that had 20,000 refugees in it. So if, if you think about the political imagination of the historical actors that we're thinking about, I could easily see um, the deep understanding of the level or the depth of the trauma of the Nakba um, at this point. And, 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 and it is around that time that Konstantin's right comes up with a, with a term, Ma'na Nakba, right? So, so the, at this point, um, it, it, it's, it would be interesting to think through the political considerations that the leaders of the city uh, took uh, uh, in, um, in making the decision to surrender or without fighting. Um, I'm sure a part, I mean, uh, if, you, if you look at the picture of the surrender agreement, you'll see that the, the Christian religious leaders were also a part of the delegation that went and signed it. So I'm sure a part of the thinking was that this is a holy Christian city and thus this will help protect it. And in fact, the Israelis were very much thinking about that. So in the days leading up to the occupation of the city, Ben-Gurion issues a very strict order um, not to um, attack the Christian uh, holy sites in the city with a clear threat of punishment. Um, uh, an order of the day is issued before the army heads to the city, preventing, harming the city. Um, and when um, there's an attempt to depopulate the city, uh, Ben Dunkelman, who was the Canadian officer leading the campaign, insisted that he had to have a written uh, approval from Ben-Gurion himself to depopulate the city, which of course never happens, which some argue is at least in part contributed to the survival of the city. I remember reading some of the, the documents, uh, really also the order by Ben-Gurion and essentially uh, order the fact that uh, the city shouldn't have been uh, depopulated and no expulsion should have been taken place. And very much because he was afraid of a popular outcry coming from Christian countries. and. I guess at the time he needed some sort of a support, political support, and obviously he was very careful. And, and I think that worked not only in Nazareth, even though that became probably one of the most important places. Uh, exactly. Nazareth then was disconnected with many other Palestinian centers, including Jerusalem. And so mm -hmm. I, I was wondering if you have any sense of uh, how people reacted to this sort of uh, disconnect uh, you know, Haifa remained uh, sort of a major connection because Haifa was then, uh, you know, including in the uh, emerging state of Israel. So that connection remained somehow. But then Nazareth was separated from the other major centers, whether Jenin, Nablus, and indeed Jerusalem. And I was wondering how people negotiated this kind of new uh, settlement. Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, <clears throat> I mean, to clarify, Haifa at this point was the shell of Haifa. So the connection with Haifa was actually kind of in certain ways reversed where Nazareth becomes the more prominent um, center and, and many people from Haifa were refugees for the first couple of years in Nazareth itself and eventually um, most of them are allowed back into, into Haifa but, um, but Haifa at this point is very few thousand Palestinians who are all concentrated in one area um, in Haifa. Um, and Haifa in that sense is also disconnected from the other Palestinian centers. Um, I Imagine the sense of trauma that comes with with this um, absolute disconnect, right? Like, um, I was what some of the files I was reading were about the buses that were in the city. So there's a, a prominent bus company that actually still functions, the Afifi bus company, uh, what is now called the Afifi bus uh, company, Al Jalil bus company. Um, but there's all these negotiations about trying to get the buses back and trying to get the buses working. So you kind of understand the, the sense of restricted space and the lack of mobility that comes with the Nakba, uh, with this disconnect. Um, and then um, the, the kind of very sudden cutting off of Jerusalem from the, the rest of what, um, the rest of Palestine, but also the rest of the Arab world, right? Like Jerusalem is now Jordan, um, but the so many of the Palestinians are also now in that area that is Jordan or in Gaza. Um, so the the there's multiple levels of this dis disconnection. Um, but Nazareth also experiences it in one more way, I think, which is that as a holy city, it was kind of a part of the tourism route, right? Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and Nazareth. Um, and now there are very different um, categories, right? And, 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 and Nazareth loses some of that place because it is much harder um, for, um, I mean, there is tourism still that is coming through Israel, but it's a very different dynamic. It's no longer this connection that connected it to these other Palestinian cities through these um, 
pilgrims, right? Now the pilgrimage route is, is, is um, cut off. Um, and, um, and, 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 and an important connection, um, I, I don't know how to define it, maybe like a, a not like, it's not just religious, right? There's like a, an imaginary, an, an imaginary geography in which Palestine functions, right? And, and, and which Nazareth's economy in part is built on that is now no longer there, right? That geography. And, 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 and if you read some of the, the references of going to Jerusalem, because at some point the Christians, some Christians are allowed to go to Jerusalem, to East Jerusalem for the holidays. And, and, and you read some of this imagery and you see how much this disconnect is a part of a, a much larger trauma of the Palestinian um, Nakba and, and Shatterit. I was wondering about the period between 1948 and 1967. How did the city uh, move forward from the trauma uh, of 1948? And, um, you know, both uh, in, in terms of demography, which we, we already discussed mm -hmm. that obviously absorbed uh, a large number of Palestinian refugees, but also in terms of its structure and also in terms of relationship with, uh, with the state of Israel, uh, because now obviously mm -hmm. Nazareth is part of that state. And mm -hmm. uh, like Israeli authorities had to deal with, with, uh, with the Palestinians living in Nazareth, I guess is also true the opposite where Palestinians living in Nazareth had to make sense of this new arrangement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And this is where the crux of my, of my, my book actually is, is about how do people survive this um, massive event that completely undercuts all the structures that they uh, and all the like everyday life that they were used to um, where the Palestinians turn from a majority to a minority um, it is there's a colonial continuity um, and this is a part of how people negotiate this so there's the formal British co colonialism ends but Israel as a settler colonial state continues to keep in its relationship with the Palestinians, significant colonial um, practices, as Sheryl Robinson has, has shown, um, and as my work shows in the particular case of Nazareth. So the residents of Nazareth um, find themselves in um, quite a bind. Um, as you mentioned, they're disconnected from the rest of the Palestinian cities and the, and the rest of the Palestinian people. Um, the military government that is imposed in October 1948 basically not only disconnects them from the outside world, but disconnects the Palestinian communities among themselves. So um, going from my village to Nazareth for medical treatment, because that was the only hospital in the area, actually required a permit from the military government. Um, so this is how much the city um, was reconfigured, the geography was reconfigured um, in this transition. Um, and within this, the leadership of the city basically now finds itself as the leadership for those Palestinians who remain within Israel. So about 156,000, according to the kind of most quoted number um, by 1949, um, remain inside Israel. And almost all of the Palestinian elites, the pre-Nakba elites are gone. The Palestinian national leadership, the intellectual, um, the educated class, the business class are all gone. Um, so Nazareth assumes this new role of leading um, the Palestinian community and mediating uh, with the Israeli state. And there's competing 
factions to do that. There is the city's traditional elite represented by um, the mayor and the municipal council, um, religious uh, leadership, um, et cetera. And then there's a new force that becomes very, very prominent in the city, which is the communists. As I mentioned, they've already been active during the, the mandate period, but now they become much more significant, much more powerful. And the only political group that is actually officially allowed to function as a political party inside Israel, and they are able to do that because the party is reunified in October 48 to become again an Arab Jewish party. And it was much harder for the Israeli state to outlaw uh, a Jewish party. Um, so they were able to have some legal protection um, to act. And these two groups, each in its own way, basically uh, try to figure out what exactly does it mean to have an Israeli citizenship. And in this process, actually force the state into um, reconfiguring, into reworking its policies and practices into uh, what the meaning of the citizenship is. And that's a contest that continues throughout the military government uh, and, and beyond. Um, the difference is that by the end of 1966, when the military government is removed, um, the structure in place, the, the, the military government structure that was so restrictive is replaced by a lot of restrictions uh, but easing in some of the um, other um, aspects of the military government. And paradoxically, after 1967, Nazareth became like a more open city because then, uh, before the Oslo Agreement, which brought to the current situation, effectively people began to travel across the border of Israel, the West Bank, and, uh, mm -hmm. and this is a period where other guests of the show that they lived directly that period, like Salim Tamari and Azmiya Jube and Isam Nassar, they all talked about it. Like there, there is a paradox here where obviously there is an occup undergoing occupation and mm -hmm. the result of military mm -hmm. defeat, but yet now cities are somehow reopened. And so I was mm -hmm. wondering you know, what happened to Nazareth? Do we have like uh, family reconnections? Uh, what are the trends that are taking place uh, given the Nazareth is yeah. also very close to the West Bank and obviously mm -hmm. highly connected with that mm -hmm. before 1948? Right. Um, and this is a, an excellent question. And as you were talking, I was remembering um, a sentence from um, Ghassan Kanafani's um, amazing uh, return to Haifa, where he says, no, you are not seeing it. You are being, you know, they are le letting you see it, right? Like there's, there's an Israeli, um, interest right there's a there's a so it's a very strange moment in which there's a a, a a mixture of the palestinian interest of reuniting and then uh, the israeli interest in um and kind of showing off um the whatever i mean the the this you know this israeliness of the new space right um and, but in nazareth as a political center for the palestinians it becomes a very significant moment in the, the political development of the city. Within the, de the next decade, Nazareth's Communist Party continues to grow. And eventually in 1976, Tawfiq Zayed is elected as the mayor of Nazareth, the communist Tawfiq Zayed. And the city's political atmosphere becomes very geared towards the Palestinian struggle. So, which then of course I, I argue shapes, that, that, that Nazareth politics shaped both the relationship with the state, but also internal Palestinian politics in 48. Um, so the, the 
occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip kind of raises the centrality of the cross-Palestinian struggle against the occupation um, that becomes a central role, but also at the same time highlighting the importance of remaining in the land. Um, so Nazareth is actually the center for Yom al-Ard, for, for the land day, which um, is a, a massive protest in um, uh, March 1976 against land confiscation. Uh, but it is <clears throat> intertwined at this point with kind of the, the struggle in the, in the West Bank. Um, and it is, um, you know, one of the, the six people that were killed in, um, in Yom al-Ard, um, just like one of the people who were killed in, in, the, second, in, the, uh, in the second Intifada were, were actually from the West Bank. Um, when the, in uh, Yom al-Ard, he was from Ain Shams. So that, that, there's a, a clear connection that is um, politically being created um, in, in multiple levels, but then there's also a very strong economic connection, which is done under the constraints of Israeli structural limitations um, and structural shaping in which the Palestinian citizens of Israel become mediators um, and middlemen in, um, between the Palestinian economy in the West Bank and Gaza Strip and, and, and inside Israel. And in this, Nazareth is also um, central part as the kind of larger, one of the larger um, Palestinian cities inside Israel. Let me draw a parallel here. According to archeologists, Nazareth around the first century AD, so the times of Jesus, just to make it uh, mm -hmm. uh, clear, Nazareth was a hotbed for political protest. They in fact, uh, you know, this, this was a town of workers that worked mostly for the Romans, obviously. But they also disagreed with um, the monarchy in sitting in Jerusalem. And, you know, some scholars argue that this is the context into which Jesus operated. Mm -hmm. And then when, when you were talking about sort of a political development of more contemporary Nazareth, I, I saw this kind of parallel where Nazareth has become some sort of a hotbed of uh, Palestinian politics. And I was wondering if this idea of Nazareth as being the sort of a, the capital of Arab Israel goes beyond the, the demography of the city. If in fact, somehow it, it's taken this role, you know, without the claims obviously of Ramallah and obviously Jerusalem as the capital of, of Palestine. But if in fact there is some sort of a, a Nazareth political capital right now, where, you know, the sort of the political ideas of the Palestinians in Israel are being developed and brought forward? Not any longer, but for a very long time, I think that Nazareth did um, carry that role, especially under the leadership of Tawfiq Zayad, who was also a Knesset member, but also the mayor of Nazareth from 76 to 93 when he died. Um, he was a charismatic, outspoken leader of Palestinian nationalist politics for a very long time, but he built on a tradition that begins um, already in the 40s, but really crystallizes into um, the center of political, uh, Nazareth into the center of political mobilization for the Palestinians in the 1950s um, and continues uh, over the decades. Um, in certain senses, Oslo undid this process, like it did, undid so many um, other things, but in certain senses, um, the, the 
post-Oslo period, the post-Oslo agreement period, um, and, and which coincided very closely with the death of, of Tawfiq Dayyad. He, he actually died coming back from visiting um, Arafat in Jericho um, in a car accident. Um, but, but this period is, is kind of a, a, a shift of the center of politics from Nazareth, um, uh, slowly, but it has been accelerating. Um, the latest mayor of Nazareth, the current mayor of Nazareth, uh, has been distancing him from the Palestinian nationalist movement and pa from Palestinian nationalist claims. And, and this was kind of the final steps towards um, undermining the city's um, status as the leading political force among Palestinian citizens of Israel. I wanted to ask you something that you mentioned at the very beginning, and I think it is very important. When you mm -hmm. look at the historiography or books dedicated to Nazareth, mostly uh, they they are dedicated to uh, sort of biblical Nazareth or you know the yeah. period of the time of Jesus and then obviously the stories. Mm -hmm. But when you look at more recent uh, uh, historiography, other than a few works on the Mamluks, the Crusader periods, even the late Ottoman or the the, the period where sort of the Ottomans uh, mm -hmm. enter Palestine, but you don't find much about Nazareth, and, and, I, and at the beginning, you, you talked about the fact that Nazareth disappeared from both Israeli and Palestinian histories. And I was wondering if you can tell us, what do you mean by that? Um, this is a, a great question, thank you so much. Um, I, I think there's, there's two things happening. I think there's two intertwined things. There is an attention to the Palestinian cities, um, Jerusalem, Jaffa, um, and, and Haifa particularly, right? Whereas most of the other Palestinian cities, you know, we started the conversation about how few people write about Gaza, how few people write about Nablus. Um, and, and so the smaller Palestinian towns actually get very little attention, even in Palestinian historiography. But then Nazareth becomes doubly marginalized because for the Israelis, Nazareth is never quite, I mean, it is, it is, it is, it is a city to be controlled. It's a city to be um, dominated and manipulated. And this is why um, what was called Upper Nazareth and now it's called Nofa Galil is created and it begins in 1954 um, in order to spatially control the Palestinians in order to prevent it from becoming the Palestinian city. And, and, and the, the, even the historiography and the historical narrative very much builds on the institutional claim of the Arab Israeli, the development of the Arab Israeli, the one that is detached from the land and from claims to um, to the land and from claims to continuity to the Palestinian people. And, and through this process, the Palestinians disappear into Arabs, right? So they're they're no longer a part of this Palestinian space and their and and then their towns um, and their history is no longer a part of that. So in that sense, they're disappeared from the Israeli history. But then because in a parallel process, Palestinian history kind of also marginalizes the Palestinians who remain inside Israel. Um, and, 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 and you look at that kind of national, uh, national narrative. I mean, post Yom Al-Ard, you see some shifts and, and, and even there, there are the symbolic gestures, right? Of, of the Palestinians who are inside Israel, but they're always um, not fully win within this realm. And I think a part of that dynamic is, is really the periodization that started or ended in 48. If you, if you have that periodization, then those who actually continue are unmanageable, right? So they become 
in, in, insignificant in, in both of those histories because you're either writing about the pre-Nakba idealized Palestine as a, a part of the nationalist narrative, or you're writing about the destroyed Palestine or the newly created Israel, which is symbolized by, by Upper Nazareth, by this settlement project in which there is an erosure of the Palestinian landscape and the Palestinian people within that landscape. So the, the combination of these two, I think, has um, led to the fact that the Palestinians who, um, that the Palestinian geography, not only the Palestinian people themselves who become a part of this newly created state of Israel in 48, um, disappear from, from the discourses. And, and I think my work, and, and now there's others who are following, are kind of trying to challenge this narrative by um, challenging the periodization. Um, and arguing for um, continuity along with that change in the catastrophic um, uh, moment of 1948. You already mentioned several times that you have an upcoming book. So I'd like to ask about uh, the book itself. When uh, we will be able to read it. Uh, so the book is in the revisions process and hopefully uh, will uh, be submitted um, we submitted to uh, Stanford in the next few months. Um, and hopefully we will go from there. <laughs> and so finally, Nazareth will be again on a map, on a historiographical map uh, with yes. more interesting <laughs> material to read. Now we, we reach the end of the, the interview, but I wanna ask you a couple of things. And uh, as I started asking about you and your connection with, with Nazareth, I wanna take you back to your place where you grew up. Uh, and I was wondering, in light of the fact that many guests discussing Jerusalem, they, particularly Jerusalemites living in Jerusalem, they always talk about their memories and often mm -hmm. food is one of their <laughs> most cherished memory. But I also very much aware as, as an Italian that every city has its own specialty. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you can give us a sense of the culinary uh, specialties of the areas of Nazareth and if you can give us uh, just a nice glimpse. <laughs> Or what are the unique uh, dishes of Nazareth? So, so Nazareth uh, claims um, knafe as one of its specialties. It's a, it's not the Nabilsiye knafe. We don't intrude on in that. But but there's the knafe in Nasre is is a very um, famous um, uh, delicacy. Um, Nazareth is surrounded by rural areas, right? So mountainous, we're, we're in, the, in the mountain region in Palestine. Um, so there's a lot of agriculture um, and, and, and culinary um, uh, developments uh, around, um, uh, around that, that agricultural product. What I end up is, uh, or uh, grape leaves is, is a big regional, um, important product. And, and in my village, um, Fliki, which is uh, still grown and harvested in our plain, uh, is uh, probably one of the contenders for the top culinary achievements. <laughs> Indeed, Fliki, one of the amazing dishes that you can eat around Palestine, which I, I, I was exposed only uh, in, in the past few years, and I discovered something similar in Italy. But uh, again, this is very the ancient connections between the various regions when the grains and ancient grains were essentially mm -hmm. exported for you know throughout what was the Roman Empire and eventually it settled in some in some places and uh, yeah I mean 
That's yeah. how we, we, we got to share many dishes, you know, despite the fact that sometimes people claim, you know, so many differences, but the, actually food is one of those areas that you get to see closeness uh, of links and connections. Yeah. One last question. We talked about obviously many things about Nazareth, but I was wondering if there's anything that I didn't ask and you want to talk about. Um, hmm, that's a hard one. <laughs> um, well, you wanted to know about my next book in the last uh, when we started talking, so I could talk about that. Um, Absolutely. So, so my pet project, uh, my next book, is actually a book about Palestinian communists, and it comes out of this book project because the communists end up being uh, such central actors um, in the story of the reconfiguring of the Palestinian society inside Israel and the story of the reconfiguring of Palestinian politics inside Israel um, and the story of struggle for um, remaining in Palestine. Um, <clears throat> and I realized that um, there's almost nothing about them. There's very little work about the communists um, the co communists in Palestine in general before and after 48, other than the great work of Musa Buderi um, and few others. Um, but definitely after 48, there's very little work that actually pays attention to the Palestinian communists and the kind of um, dynamics that they, um, um, they uh, and the roles that they play. Um, and at the same time, they're intertwined in this um, popular contest over their history. Um, which kind of takes place in the context of um, 1980s and 1990s internal Palestinian politics in, in Israel and the rise of the, the nationalist parties as maybe Shara and others, um, in which now this history of the communists is construed in this language of, of heroism or, uh, or treason. And, and a part of my, my project as a historian is undermining these dichotomies and, and kind of trying to explain um, how people function within their historical context. So this project tries to understand the communists uh, from the mandate period until the Oslo agreement uh, by placing them within both local Palestine context within uh, in Israel, within Middle Eastern context and um, in the Cold War and post-Cold War dynamics. So trying to understand them as um, a part of these multiple transnational settings um, um, that complicates uh, the ways in which um, we can understand their actions and, and their ideology and, and, and the development of those um, within those years. This was Lina Dalashe, currently associate professor at Humboldt State University in California, but at the moment enjoying biking and running in Palestine. Lina, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.